You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2012. Today's episode is titled, How Jesus Made a Difference. When your life is over, will your existence on earth have meant anything? Deep down in each of us, there is a desire to make a difference, to believe that our existence means something more than fun, comfort, self-indulgence, personal pleasure, or financial wealth. So how do we live in such a way that our lives will make a meaningful difference? Both individuals and organizations should seek to make a meaningful difference. The only way to do this is to live as Jesus did with the singular focus of doing the will of God according to the ways of God. For both individuals and organizations, some of the key ingredients to living meaningful lives are submission to authority, viewing the sovereignty of God in all circumstances, recognizing that God, recognizing that work is ministry, using money as a tool to obey the will and ways of God, and making the will and ways of God the priority in all situations. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, How Jesus Made a Meaningful Difference. My topic is Jesus' strategy for making a meaningful difference. The topic of this conference is all about making a meaningful difference. And Adam did a masterful job of talking about how we can reach out and touch the community. And when you stop and think about the reality of the universe... There is a God who has created this universe and he's defined all the rules of the universe. And we know him. There is a world out there that does not know him. Even though they've been created by him and are subject to his laws, they don't know him. And so consequently, they live rebelliously and independent of him. And when you live that way, you do not enjoy the favor of God. So we have a leg up on everybody else that doesn't know the Lord. The question is, will we use that reality? Will we use that advantage to go out and do what we're called to do? And ultimately, to make a meaningful difference in life, to get to the end of your life and look back and say, did I count? Did I make a difference? Did I do what God put me here to do? And that's ultimately the big question that we'll all ask at the end. The only way we'll be able to answer that well is if we walk well day by day, obediently, doing what he put us here to do. So I want to talk about this topic this morning. I want to talk about five distinctives that Jesus illustrated for us that might help us as we think about our daily lives, as we think about work, as we think about the workplace, as we think about being significant and making our life count. But first, just some examples of some ways that some people think about making a meaningful life. This little cartoon here says, rowing harder doesn't help if the boat is headed in the wrong direction. (laughs) Or how about this one? I never work up to my potential. That way I don't run out of potential. (laughs) Here's a good one. Motivation. It's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. Well, I want to talk to you about a little more serious matter here. Back about a month ago, an unidentified man in Oregon announced that he was going to die on Tuesday, March 8th. He was going to use their state's law there, the Death with Dignity Act. And the weekend before his scheduled death, he announced his plan to commit suicide and invited people to ask me anything online. So he carried on an online conversation with anybody that wanted to talk to him. And so... You do think that maybe at this point you might get some reality out of a man when you know he's facing death? You know, Tuesday, I'm going to commit suicide, so ask me whatever you want. So here's some of the things that were asked. 
What's your greatest moment in life? Now, if somebody asked you that, what would you say? Huh? Greatest moment in life. What would you say? Okay. Yeah. Getting married, having kids, that kind of thing. Well, here's what he said. Finishing my master's degree from a hospital bed. You see, he had been sick for some time. And he considered it a major accomplishment to be able to finish that degree while he was sick. So he was very proud of that. What was his fondest memory? Well, he actually had a nephew that beat cancer. What were regrets? This is kind of interesting. This might be a little touching to some of the ladies. Just one, he said, that he bought an engagement ring for his high school sweetheart, but never gave it to her, then joined the Army. He said, I have a letter that I will be sending to her on Monday morning. Kind of interesting comment. Now, what about words of wisdom? You think somebody facing death might have some words of wisdom? You would hope that. Well, let's see what he says. Nothing we have is worth hurting anyone else for. This is basically the best the world can do here. When you don't know the Lord, this is the kind of thinking you have. Some of it a little touching, maybe a little bit of truth. But when you get down to the words of wisdom, is that it? There's nothing worth fighting for or hurting anyone for? There's nothing worth dying for? Is that what it's all about? Well, maybe we ought to ask ourselves, is this really what making a meaningful life is? Well, let's go on with some more common thoughts. Just very common perspectives about what a meaningful life is. Many people define significance, success, and life in terms of money. You know who this guy is? Carlos Slim. Lives in Mexico. Telecom giant. He is the richest man in the world, according to Forbes magazine. You thought it was Bill Gates, didn't you? Now, Bill Gates is a pauper. He has 20 billion less than this guy. Okay? Or how about fame? According to my research on the Internet, Barack Obama's and Michelle Obama are the most famous people in the world. They're most recognizable. They're most widely known people in the world. What about influence? This is Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. I don't know this guy on the left, but I guess some of you soccer players might know him. But I think this is Lady Gaga. And I think you know this guy right here, Bill Clinton from Arkansas. Supposedly, these are the most influential people in the world. Is that the way for a meaningful life, being influential? Or how about this guy right here? I study this guy extensively. It's an interesting guy. I wish we could spend some time talking about him. When you look at his theory of relativity, by the way, this is Einstein. Does everybody know this? This is Einstein. I want to be sure, you know, when I told Dennis, I, he asked me about my dissertation. I said, it was all about stark broadening. He said, what? Huh? Albert Einstein was clearly a brilliant man. But as I've read some biographies on him, one of the things that I found about him was he was a student of the Old Testament. And I've really been wondering how deeply, how profound his Old Testament understanding influenced his thinking that developed the theory of relativity. And of course, scientists don't look for that connection. Scientists are naturalists. I was trained as a naturalist. A naturalist is somebody who believes there is no spiritual reality, all realities in the tangible world, so we don't look for any explanations of phenomena outside the tangible world. That's how I was trained. Now, sadly, my professors never explained to me that that was their presupposition. I had to discover that years later when my spiritual fathers began to teach me worldview. And then I began to understand the deception I had been placed under. But Einstein was a man who was deeply profound in his thinking. And I have, a, I have a sense, just a deep sense, that much of his thinking came from meditating on the Word. 
Uh, that struck home in a fresh way a little more than a year ago. We did a day of listening. I got 10 pastors from the local city together, and we said, you know what, we're going to go to the heart of our city, and we're going to listen to God on behalf of what he wants to do in our community. Part of that time was set aside just for prayer together and just walking and listening, but we started the day, we went to the head of the Chamber of Commerce and heard a presentation from him. We went and heard from two members of our city council. We went to our police chief. We went to a couple of the leaders of the most significant nonprofits in our area, and we just said, talk to us about our community. We've come to listen. We want to hear what you have to say, what you see. And God chose one of our city council members to speak the word of the Lord to us. And it was a challenging word. They said, yes, we have a lot of problems in our community, and there's a lot of ways you can serve and get involved. And they said, what we'd really need you to do is be who you're supposed to be as Christians. What I've seen in the scripture is that you are called to be peacemakers. And our community, as we're facing these problems, is so divided. It is so wounded. It is so hurt. We need you to be peacemakers. And honestly, it was so humbling to hear it, not just because our city council member was the one who was speaking the word of the Lord to us in that way, kind of a flip of, I think, some of what God would like for us in that context, but two, because we recognize that we need some peacemaking within the church before we're going to be able to do much peacemaking within our city and community. God's pointing out to us our need for healing and our need to be healers. In a second, I'll get to an example of that with Jesus, but just here to to jump into our notes quickly, I just have some introductory comments before we get to a passage of scripture that I, I think God wants to bring to life for us. We are in the midst of a significant transition, and it's global. I think one of the challenges that we face is really a challenge of capacity. The way that we've lived, the way that we've built, um, even in a broader culture, our systems are being challenged. And one of the reasons or ways that they're being challenged is we're just hitting overload. We're reaping the consequences of building in ungodly ways. And, you know, I think about... A lot of the natural disasters that have been taking place, you you know, I think about New Zealand, and they were better prepared than many nations, but they were struggling trying to figure out how they were going to break through financially before they had a major earthquake in Christchurch. And then you throw in billions and billions of dollars. I mean, it's just like we've got one ball after another that's being thrown into the air, and it's clear we can't juggle it all. And so the question is, is how are we going to respond? And one of the ways that the world is responding is by pushing the problem down further and further to the local level. And this is something my dad's been talking about. I remember him in the 80s, probably before the 80s, but in the early 80s, talking about this aspect of the the defunding as the chickens come home to roost. There's a defunding that's going to push the problems further and further down to the local level. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in our community It's not just that the state of California, which, if you don't know, is in financial disaster on billion-dollar scale. It's not just that the state of California is no longer funding the needs and the problems that it used to send money to, all right? That's big, and that's significant, and that's true. But I know in the city of Santa Rosa, I'm close enough to the leaders, it's not just that the state's not funding. You know what the state's doing? The state is taking local money to help them do the things that they have to do. Literally, huge, huge amounts of the energy of the legal team of our city of Santa Rosa is figuring out how can we use the law to protect the local tax dollars that are given for local funding issues from being taken by the state of California 
in light of IOUs that they want to give us. When we talk about defunding, it's not just that the flow of funding is not coming down, it's that now the state is using its larger authority to reach into the city and actually take the funds that belong to us. And we're doing, we're spending our energy doing somersaults, finding out how do we change the wording, how do we find the loopholes to actually keep the money that's designed to go here from being here. And so what you're seeing is on a massive scale, you're seeing the pulling back of the veneer of what's really going on in local communities. Because we've used money and social programs and those sorts of things to to cover a lot of it. Now, in the midst of this, I believe that God is awakening the church to a theological understanding of the city. I would get lost if I go too deep in this, but you're seeing people take ownership for their local communities around the world. You know, you can do city reaching search on the Internet or all that, and, and you're seeing a lot of that, and it's a gift of God. I'm excited by the fact that the church is beginning to awaken to the reality of John 3.16 a little bit more. We've made it our verse that we put up on the television screen for the whole world to see for a long time, but we're actually, there's an awakening in the church to what it really means when it says, for God so loved the world. See, for a long time it was what? For God so loved Christians. Or even for God so loved people. You look at that word in the Greek, cosmos, and it talks about the whole enchilada. That God's redemptive purposes are not just for changing an individual's heart or even for changing a community of people, but he actually really loves his creation. And the testimony of the redemptive work of Christ applies even beyond individuals' eternal salvation. He loves culture. God wants to express and glorify himself in business and medicine and education and art. He actually wants to heal the land. And so is the church is beginning to awaken to these things. I see the grace of God beginning to move in the church to bring us to a place where we may actually be able to be salt and light in a time of great opportunity, which is, I hope, one of the significant things that you took away from last night. If we will respond to the Lord, this can be a defining moment. This can be a time of great light. But the awakening that God wants to bring is not an awakening just for the church. And while it involves coming to a place of a great deeper relationship and love for Jesus, it's going to manifest itself in a love for people and communities and in a love for God's creation and in an expression of his kingdom into every aspect of life. God's awakening the church to the power of service, which I am thrilled about. I need to not get stuck there. I'll talk a little bit more about that. What about Jesus? Maybe we ought to talk about his perspective. How would he define a meaningful life? Do you think he might define it differently? Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's not fame. Maybe it's not influence. Maybe it's not intelligence. Although, arguably, all those were easy for him. If he needed money, he could just go to a fish and open up its mouth and pull out money. It wasn't a big deal. But he defined success, significance, and meaning in life differently. Let's just take a look at a text here. This is John 17, verses 1 through 4. This is perhaps the best statement I've seen of Jesus expressing what it is to have a meaningful life. He says, this is right after his discussion with his disciples in the upper room. He's preparing for his departure. 
And so now he starts what many call his high priestly prayer. For me, this is the Lord's prayer. This is the Lord praying about his life and about what's coming. He's praying for us as his departure is near. He said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he may give eternal life to those you have given him. Now, please note, he has authority over all, but he only gives eternal life to those specifically, you know, given to him by the Father. That's one of those troubling verses that we really don't like. I grew up Baptist, and they would prefer not to have that verse in the Bible. But it's there. It expresses something about the character and nature of God that we need to reflect on and look at. Then he tells us what eternal life is. And I want you to notice that he does not define eternal life the way we do. You know, we define it in terms of going to heaven. We define it in terms of living forever, time and places. He defines it in terms of a relationship. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son. Now he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now you notice up here, he's saying, glorify your son. He's looking forward, I think, to the cross where the father will be ultimately glorified in his life. But he says, I've already lived a life that's glorified you. You know, many times we think, well, gee, everything led up to the cross, which it did. But what led up to the cross was glorifying the Father. So he says, I brought you glory on earth by completing. This is that word we get teleology from. The work, this is the Greek word, ergon, you gave me to do. Now, the word ergon is a very interesting word. Here's what Kittle says in his theological dictionary of the New Testament. He gives a number of interesting comments about it. Aragon refers to business, employment, that's which anyone is occupied with. In other words, you housewives that work at home, you Aragon too. Okay? Whatever it is that you do every day is your Aragon. It's any product, whatever, anything accomplished by hand, art, industry, or mind, any act, anything done, the idea of working is emphasized in opposition to that which is less than work. You see, it's all about work. Now, I want you to notice, what was Jesus' Aragon? By the way, that's the Greek way you spell it. You see, Jesus, if we understand the Jewish customs correctly, at age 12, he would have apprenticed under his father. He would have taken on the father's business. So if that's true, and at age 30, he left that business to the next assignment in life, he spent 18 years as a carpenter. Now, who here has been to Israel? Anyone? Okay, did you see much wood in Israel? Anybody see any wood in Israel? It's hard to find. So, what would a carpenter do in Israel? There's not much wood. Well, there are several things he might have done. He grew up in Nazareth, which was about 16 miles from the Sea of Galilee. He might have built boats. That's possible. Some think that more likely what he did was with the limited wood they did have, they would use those for fine finishes in their homes. So he was probably something close to a finished carpenter. Or maybe he built some of the furniture for the home. But these things, with wood being so precious, he would be building some of the most valued, prized items they had. 
See, that's what he was assigned to. Now, it's interesting. Why is it he was a carpenter? What's the point of being a carpenter? It was divinely assigned. His father was a carpenter. And Jesus, as was the custom of the time, was the son. The son would go into the business of the father. So God orchestrated. The father orchestrated this. It was a divine assignment from the father. It wasn't just some random choice. You see, today we live as if we just make random choices. You know, we say, oh, what are you going to major in college? I don't know. I haven't thought about it. Maybe um, maybe geography or philosophy or, you know, maybe physics, whatever. It's like it's some random thing. It isn't a random thing. Even when you think it's random, it's not random. You remember in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, it says the lot is cast into the lap. The lot is like the straws. Put the straws in the hand. You pick them. Whoever gets the short straws, you know, is going to be punished with whatever they're going to do. Or the modern-day equivalent is flipping a coin. We think that's a random event, don't we? We do it in front of football games, so we'll decide who gets the ball first. We think it's some random thing. But Scripture says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You see, the apostles understood that, so when they were looking to replace Judas, what did they do? They cast lots, saying, Lord, we know you're going to reveal your will through this act of casting lots that looks random to us, but it's in totally in your sovereign control. You see, we've got a God who is in control of his universe. So Jesus' assignment to be a carpenter was a divine assignment. Your assignment is a divine assignment, whatever it is. So if you want to make a meaningful difference in life, you've got to find that divine assignment by doing certain things that God has orchestrated and laid out for us to do. So what we want to do is talk about some of these things. I want to talk to you specifically about five key things that will help you line up with the will of God for your life to find your divine assignment so you can have a meaningful life just like Jesus did. Remember, the definition of success is right here. It's not money. It's not fame. It's not influence. It's not intelligence. It is this right here. It's bringing glory to the Father by completing the work assignment that God has given you to do. Now you think about that, because most of us, if we're honest, we have a hard time with this definition. Because we think, gee, I'm just a guy who works in a workplace. I'm a salesman, or I'm a, I'm a manager, or I, I drive a truck, or, you know, I dig a ditch, whatever. We think of those things as very menial, non-significant activities. Just like a carpenter sounds like a menial, non-significant activity. No, anything God ordains counts. So whenever you get into what you have been called to do through following biblical scripture, and that's how you'll find it, then you count in the kingdom. Jesus was a carpenter because that was his divine assignment. So one of the first characteristics we see about Jesus, well, first, before I get into that, I just want to remind you one other thing about Jesus before I get into these five characteristics. This is very interesting. When you look at Jesus and you look at his characteristics, just ask yourself, would I want to follow somebody like this? Would I consider somebody like this really significant and meaningful? By the end of his life, he was homeless. He was penniless. He lived off the charity of women. He was controversial. He was rejected by religious leaders. He was rejected by political leaders. He was a convicted criminal. He received the death penalty. He was abandoned by almost all of his followers. His death was witnessed by very few, mostly women. And 
He was buried by an obscure follower. That's your leader. That make you feel good. <laughs> so did he make a meaningful difference? Really? Really did. Okay. Now keep in mind, Carlos Slim is the richest man in the world. Is he a success? Richest man in the world. Is he a success? Is his life going to count? Is it going to be meaningful? Well, we're really not in a position to make that judgment. You know why? Because we don't know what the call of God is on that man. Unless we know the call of God, you can't evaluate whether or not they follow the call of God. Money is never an indicator. All right, number three, work. Now, how do we look at work? Most of us, if we're brutally honest, and some of you have been around this enough, you know that you know, unnecessary evil is not a good answer. Would you agree? Okay. Something I have to do to make money, not a good answer. Okay. We recognize that God made the universe, and he values his universe. We could turn over to Isaiah 28, and we could read a text there where God says very clearly, I made all the rules of farming, and I trained the farmer on how to farm. Now, if he's that involved in work, that means he must value it. It's important to him. Furthermore, when you look at the creation mandate, we are here specifically to work. Have you looked at the stats of what happens when people retire? Yeah, they die. They tend to die. Somebody asked Peter Drucker, arguably one of the great thinkers in management theory of the last century. He was in his 80s, and they said, Peter, when are you going to retire? He said, what, and die? That was his comment. Peter Drucker worked until he died at age, I believe, 93 is when he died. He was productive. By the way, once he hit 80, he really started seeking the Lord at a new level. His latter writings are different from his earlier writings. They reflect more insight and wisdom into the character and nature of God. So what is work? Well, if we view it biblically, it's something that we have been ordained by God to do. Everybody's got a work assignment. And everybody's work assignment counts when it lines up with God. So I just want to take a look at this text real quickly. This is Mark 6. Jesus left. Now, Jesus has just been in the synagogue and the home of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and he's healed the daughter. That was a very interesting whole episode there. You remember when he goes in there to heal her, and the people were standing around mourning the death of the daughter. And Jesus says, don't worry, she's not dead. You know, she's just asleep. Remember what they did? They laughed at him. You see, when you don't have a paradigm to receive truth, you won't receive truth. When you don't have a paradigm to hear Jesus, you won't hear Jesus. So then from there, we have this interchange. Jesus left them and went to his hometown. So he's up in Galilee, up around Nazareth, where he grew up, where he was a carpenter for 18 years, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? By the way, this word for carpenter is tekon. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it also means builder. It's got another implication, builder. It's what, you know, today, if you go to a construction shop like a home, your lead carpenter is the superintendent. He's the builder of the home. So they may have had a similar concept. So he may have been involved even in building homes. That's possible. Okay, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? You see, in the Roman culture, the women were second class, so they wouldn't bother listing their names. 
They would list the men's names, but not the women's names. See, Jesus sets women free. Do you know that? Jesus values women, but in the Roman culture, they didn't. And sometimes scripture is written showing the accommodation to the culture. So that's probably why the names aren't listed. And they took offense at him. You see, when we don't have a paradigm to receive truth from Jesus, we're offended. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and among his relatives in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people. Now, does this mean he was not able to? That he didn't have the power? No. No, the context was the problem. It was not Christ. If the context isn't right, then the Holy Spirit is quenched. That's an example of that. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. This is what lack of faith looks like. Then Jesus went on around teaching from village to village. Now, so you see, Jesus, he recognized that his 18 years of work as a carpenter was part of God's plan and purpose for his life. It was the thing that God used to prepare him for his next assignment. You know, we go from assignments to assignments, most of us, many assignments through our lives. You look back on the long trail of assignments and you'll see the hand of God. I shared with you about my spiritual fathers. Each one of them came along when I was in different phases and different assignments in my life. And each one of them put different deposits in me to guide me into where God wanted me to go. Well, that's the way God works. God works very holistically. We tend to be very event-oriented. We're talking about what's going on today. What's in it for me today as opposed to thinking about the bigger picture. Well, Jesus understood the bigger picture. Jesus made a meaningful difference because he was holistic. That is, he saw God involved in everything. He was not dualistic. You see, these people that were questioning him, they're saying, how could a carpenter have this kind of wisdom? How could a carpenter do miracles? How could a CPA know anything about spiritual reality? How could a salesman teach me about Jesus? How could a ditch digger reveal the Father to me? You see, those are things that we don't think about. We think immediately if we find somebody that we want to share the gospel with or share Christ with, what do we think about? Well, go, can I go get an appointment with a pastor so they can talk to the pastor? That's what we think about, isn't it? You see, that's our dualistic thinking. Hey, you met him, you're the man or the woman. You're the person that God has assigned. You take on the responsibility and you present the kingdom of God to them. So Jesus understood this. He was holistic, not dualistic. His work assignment was his ministry and God's provision to provide training and wisdom for him to do what he was called to do. So that's how Jesus viewed work. How about money? Money, money, money. We all love to talk about money. It was a financial advisory company in Dallas. It's owned by some, you know, 30-somethings that are really proud of how they walk in a biblical worldview. And so they invited me to come speak at their luncheon. It's just for their senior executives. They all get together and they talk about how great they are at following a biblical worldview. So um, they invited me to come. You know, that's cruel. You know what? <laughs> so I walk in there. I said, hey, what, what do you want to talk about? Anything you want to talk about? You want to talk about retirement? You want to talk about money? You know, you want to talk about investments? What do you want to talk about? We'll talk about it. Okay. And we'll talk about biblical. You guys love a biblical worldview. They say, yeah, we do. We give to all these kinds of ministries and all that kind of stuff. So, great. Okay. So, uh, what do you want to talk about? They said, well, money. Let's talk about money. Uh, great. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Okay. Do you believe this statement? Do you believe that if you have money that you don't have any needs? Because the money will take care of them. 
Yeah, we do. I said, you teach your clients that. Yeah, we do. Our clients think that too. I said, well, let me read a text to you. So I flipped him over to Revelation 3, verse 17, where Jesus states that. So when the Laodiceans say, he says to them, you think you are rich and therefore you don't need anything. Then he says, but, it's always the scary. You do not realize, that means you are deceived. That's what you do not realize means. You are deceived. Here's the truth. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Well, I read that to him, and you should have seen the faces change. <laughs> it was a, an eye-opener. And so we just used that as a launching board to talk about their view of money, which was very worldly, even though they all pride themselves on having a biblical worldview, versus what the Bible really said about money. Well, so far I haven't been invited back. Don't think that biblical paradigm of money fit them well. Well, Jesus had a very biblical view of money. Here's an example of it. Luke 16, verse 10 through 13. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Whoa, wait a minute. What's this deal? Worldly wealth is not true riches. Worldly wealth is like a a training tool. It's like, you know, I've got a little tool in my home that Dennis likes to play with. It's a golf swing trainer, okay? It forces you to properly grip the club. It forces you to release the club through the hitting area. You have to do it because the club is designed that way. You cannot hit a golf ball with it. You cannot play golf with it. It's a training tool. That's what money is. Money is a training tool. It's what God gives us to teach us and train us in stewardship skills so that we can handle the real stuff. Just take a look at Proverbs 8 sometime. We don't have time right now. Proverbs 8 says that there's something much better than money, far better than money, far better than the gold and silver. It's called wisdom. You see, wisdom, now that's true riches. Righteousness, that's true riches. Obedience to God, that's true riches. You see, we don't have enough biblical worldview in us to even define things correctly. We get caught up with the world's definitions. Jesus made a meaningful difference because he understood that money is a training tool to teach us to obey God and a tool to obey the will of God. Have you ever thought about that? Most of us think about, when we think about money, we think about us. What can I do for me? I was speaking at a church a few years ago, and I asked this question. I said, what if God dropped $100 million in your bank account today? No strings attached. It's yours. What would you do? And there wasn't any hesitation. Anybody want to answer that? Huh? Tithe? Well, that's not what the lady said. There was a lady in the audience that immediately said, go to Neiman's. You know what Neiman's is? It's a very high-end store in Dallas. Yeah. Go to Neiman's. Well, she was illustrating my point very well. James 4 says this. You have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives that you can spend it on your pleasures. In other words, when your focus of money is your pleasure, your comfort, your entertainment, your toys, it's all about you and what you can do. You know what God says about you? You're an enemy of God. Read the text. It says you're an enemy of God. Everybody here has been guilty of that. We've all been enemies of God because we have not used money and seen money properly. Money is a training tool 
to teach us to obey God, to qualify us for true riches, and it's a tool to obey God. We've got to learn how to make decisions. I've got to hurry. I would love to tell you how to make decisions biblically, but I don't have time. Sorry. All right, last thing. Priorities here. The fifth thing that Jesus did well is he had the right priorities. You know, most of us, our priority is our own personal comfort and convenience. You know, we're not interested in the suffering. That's really not in our vocabulary. I was talking to a guy recently. He says, you know, in the paradigm I'm in, we don't even have a theology of suffering. That's not part of the deal. Yeah, God help him, because guess what? You know what Paul said about this? In Philippians chapter 1, he says this. It's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his name. Oh, wow. I don't like that. Can we cut that verse out? Okay. Oh, but Peter, Peter reinforces it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this. He says that you are called to suffer for Christ. That just kind of took it to a new level. It's part of my calling to do this. I'm supposed to suffer. Well, gee, what's the deal here? I mean, this doesn't sound like that sweet Jesus I heard about growing up. You know, it was all about God's going to save you and give you a wonderful life. And your life will be easy and pleasant and fun. And when you go to heaven, it's just going to be a joyous time. I mean, that's what I heard growing up. I did not hear a message about God ruling and reigning through me and being part of his kingdom. So if you don't hear that message, your priorities will be messed up. Well, Jesus was very clear on his priorities. And you guys know this text, so I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm just going to point out to you. This part up here is talking about how God takes care of this universe. The flowers in the field and the animals and everything. He takes care of everything. He says, if you're going to take care of that stuff that's not his highest level of creation, he's going to take care of human beings, which are his highest beings in his creation, the beings charged to rule his creation. He's going to take care of us. But we have a predicate here. He says, seek first. And that word there is proton. Proton is, of course, we think of protons as the core of the nucleus of the atom, which it is, because the word proton came from the idea of being first. Okay? So, first in priority, first in rank, first in significance, first in importance. It's first his kingdom. That is his rule and reign and his righteousness, which is a word that expresses his standards, his principles, his values, his philosophy, his practices. That's what righteousness looks like. And he's got, by the way, all of that for your business. Whatever business you're in, he has all kinds. He's got philosophies, values, principles, practices for you to engage in. And if you haven't studied a biblical worldview of whatever it is you do, then you will think like the world. The default for all of us is to think like the world. We have to be trained to think biblically. So we have to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then he says, all of these things, food, clothing, shelter, all these things that you need, and he knows you need them, he'll take care of them. Jesus never fretted about any of that stuff. He never worried about money. He never worried about the next job. He never worried about going bankrupt. He's so in such communion with the Father that there was never any concern. He's the ultimate who could cast all of his cares on the Lord, which is what we're called to do too. Okay, Jesus made a meaningful difference because he lived submitted to God's priorities. He sought first the kingdom and his righteousness. Okay, so let me summarize. So how does Jesus make a meaningful difference? Okay, first on authority, the common view is submission to self-will. 
Jesus' view was submission to the will of the Father. Circumstances, the common view is seek to escape bad circumstances. Jesus' view was to grow through circumstances. Work, common view is something you have to do. Something you only do until you can retire so you can go do your will. Jesus' view was it was divinely ordained ministry and training. Does work take on a different dimension when you view it as ministry? I mean, most of us are hurrying up retiring so we can go to ministry. That's how we think about it. Jesus didn't think that way. Money, the common view is money is the measure of success. For Jesus, it's a training tool to facilitate the will of God. And priorities, the common view is personal pleasure and comfort. For Jesus, it was all about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is how Jesus lived. And he was the greatest success ever. If you want the notes, by the way, you can email me. I'll be happy to send you these notes. And may I pray for you. Would you let me do that? Father, we thank you so much for the revelation that we have of you in your scripture, of how you tell us what success and significance is. You tell us how to have a meaningful life. And, Father, we repent of thinking like the world and living like the world. Father, give us the grace to think like Jesus so that we have the power through the Holy Spirit to act like Jesus so we can walk and live like Jesus. Grant us that grace, Lord. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you as your servants to do your bidding to accomplish your purposes on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. Thank you.